We're going to head north. Northern Hemisphere. Keep going to Europe and catch up with a, a man who, who helped um, provide some awesome colour um, and analysis from Rugby World Cup. Gee, we were really treated with uh, the generosity of uh, a lot of our pundits out of the north. Uh, and uh, we go back to uh, the one, the only Mr... Gavin uh, Casey, a fine sports a journalist. You can uh, follow his work at the at the forty two. He joins us. Um, welcome to twenty twenty four, Gavin. I'm not allowed to say Happy New Year's anymore. It's too, it's too far into the new year, according to some. But I hope you are well. <laughs> I do like that Larry David approach. Give it a cutoff point of about the seventh of January, Dan, and then yeah, welcome to twenty twenty four. Many happy returns. I hope it's going well for you guys. Well, we're in summer, mate. We're in shorts. We're in t-shirts. Uh, we're in jandals. Uh, we're loving life, mate. Um, let me guess, it's typically stinkingly cold up there. Yeah, bitterly, bitterly cold, actually. I was just chatting to one of my best mates who's living in Sydney. He's telling me he's going to work wearing shorts as well. And I'm green with envy, but I suppose at least I don't have to wake up at all hours of the morning to watch uh, Champions Cup rugby this weekend. It's the only saving grace, I think, on this side of the uh, planet. So uh, it's an exciting one. Plenty of uh, Kiwis involved, and the four Irish provinces are facing off against French opposition. All of those games are pretty pivotal, and it's uh, an exciting time for rugby up in this neck of the woods. The yeah. Nations is only around the corner as well. In a spooky way, oh, it's crept up on us. And I have to say, after that quarterfinal between uh, our two fine countries, I am simply not ready for it. I'd rather postpone <laughs> it for another eight months or so. <laughs> so the, grie- the grieving has been long. Has it? And, and still raw. I'd say I'm only into my second or third phase of what could be a 10-phase <laughs> process, to be totally honest with you. I think it's going to stay with us for quite a while. Uh, look, the only thing is, the, the curtain being raised on a new Six Nations campaign will help to ease the pain. It's The thought of it at the moment doesn't seem the most salivating to my mind, but once that uh, whistle blows on a Friday night in Marseille, where Ireland take on France, at the Stade Velodrome, a real cauldron of a, of a stadium, and a bit of a switch from Paris as well, which is a nice change. I think the blood will be flowing again, for sure. So, it's yeah, as I say, it's a really interesting time for rugby up in this um, part of the world, and uh, entering what's approaching the business end of club rugby, and then Six Nations to take you through the spring. I, I suppose I shouldn't complain, really. Yeah, maybe unfairly on my behalf when teasing this interview about 20-odd minutes ago, I, I described it as, you know, a wonderful way to start the Six Nations against two developing nations who did very well getting through to the quarterfinals uh, of the last World Cup and uh, can expect big things in the next four years. Yeah, well, I'm hoping you guys really uh, manage to match your potential as well over the next four. I don't remember any trophies coming back to New Zealand either, to be fair. <laughs> Yeah, I don't want to talk about the World Cup. One point lost in the final, mate. I, I tell you what, that, that's pretty hard to stomach too. Um, do, oh, the rugby best, best start, because I see people over there are losing their minds about what players' names on the back of jerseys. Like, seriously, get the game started. Oh, mate, I, I really can never understand the extent to which this annoys people, or equally the extent to which people feel passionately about it. I think it's a relatively nice thing. For sure, it's helpful for casual fans of what is a minority sport globally, to be able to gain some kind of name recognition while watching players. If they're watching their first ever rugby game, a Six Nations game, it's nice to see a few surnames. But God, I don't think the conversation needs to go beyond that. And I do understand, I guess, the traditionalist view of the jersey does not belong to an individual player, belongs to the country. The player is borrowing the jersey. But I feel that's so cliche and and a little bit 
outworn at this point. I don't know what you boys think, but my sense of it would be if you have worked your entire life towards that moment where you're wearing that jersey, then for sure that jersey belongs to you, at least for that day. And I think your name is worthy of being on the back of it. What do you boys reckon? Oh, mate, I, I just think you nailed it at the top. You can't forsake your fans, and not all of them, uh, you know, deep in the weeds of any sport. Uh, help them identify players. You might actually go, who is that number 13? He's kind of amazing. I'd like to watch him again. Uh, yeah, so I, I think it's pretty simple. To the games themselves, um, you know, what, what are the big storylines heading into the, the European uh, Champions Cup weekend? There's some delicious-looking matchups, but, you know, what's hogging the attention as far as you're concerned? Well, one of the interesting perspectives in Ireland is that you have Ulster, who had a really challenging start to the season, and we're probably conjuring questions about their credibility as a, as a serious team. They hit a, a slump of form and, and a kind of a level of performance that felt as though there was a bit of a malaise about them. And suddenly they're out the back of this malaise. They've beaten Racing of France in the Champions Cup. They've beaten Connacht and Leinster away from home, back-to-back in the URC. So on this run of three really impressive victories in different ways, impressive as well. And they host Toulouse, the aristocrats, the five-time champions, to lose of maximum points in Europe. They're coming to a cold, rainy, windy Belfast on Saturday night where it's going to be even colder because of the nighttime kickoff. And Toulouse and France have actually lost five of their 12 games so far in the top 14, and all five of those defeats have been away from home. So it seems like the window might be open there for Ulster to do something a little bit special. But I have to say, from a personal perspective, one of the most interesting matches I'm looking forward to this weekend is a, is a battle between two of your boys, or at least a potential battle in Alex Nankavell, who's signed for Munster in the off-season, he's going pretty well, and it looks like he's going to be fit for their trip to Toulon, who both uh, Leicester Fire and Ganuku among their ranks. So that could be a, a tasty midfield clash if both of those guys are selected. And that's a must-win game for Munster away to Toulon. And they, they really have flattered to deceive a little bit in Europe this season. They've been absolutely ravaged by injury, and, and I really can't stress that enough. I actually interviewed one of their centres, Rory Scannell, the other day, and Rory and I grew up together. It was actually our first time doing an interview, but the first thing I said to him was, like, I'm just glad to see you're, you're on your feet and still alive. Because as he told me, he checked their squad update on his phone a couple of days ago, and he was like, geez, we've got like 18 or 19 players left here. So months are up against it, but that tends to be when they're at their best as well in Europe. And um, that's just two of the Irish provinces against French opposition. You have Leinster hosting Stade Francais. Now, Stade are, I think... Um, they're bottom of their pool in Europe, and they're going very well in the domestic league. So it could be the case that Lauren Labie throws his hat at that a little bit, maybe sends a weekend yeah. team to Dublin, and Leinster will probably sail through. And then Connacht away to Lyon. Lyon struggling in France, just got battered 45-0 by Toulouse. Uh, Connacht coming in off the back of a really impressive New Year's Day victory over Munster in the URC. Maybe that could be an interesting little game for Connacht to reignite their European campaign. Hey, Gav, Louis here, mate. And I, I think a lot of um, Kiwis actually find that uh, keeping up with our, or like, tra- you know, um, I guess fear where the rugby fans find keeping up with our super rugby and, and our rugby systems down here as far as the, how the competition's structured is hard enough. I, I Could you, as simply as possible, explain the different competitions in kind of calendar form in European club rugby? Because the, this crossover for casuals between, um, you say that you've got the, the French teams all taking on the Irish teams this week. How does it work? When do they split yeah. off into these competitions? How is yeah. it structured? In code, we're not yeah, smart down that... here, mate. You've probably figured that out. <laughs> <laughs> mate, I got the heebie-jeebies when you asked me to explain it, so I think it's a similar story up here. <laughs> but 
No, the way it works is if, if people would be familiar with, like, say, the soccer calendar where you have your domestic competition, uh, say, weekend on weekend, and then you would have, like, the UEFA Champions League, the European competition midweek. Obviously, that wouldn't be feasible in Europe, so the, in rugby, excuse me. So the way they do it is you might play three, four games in a domestic competition, then it switches to the Champions Cup, the continental competition, for a couple of weekends in a row, and then you're back into your domestic competition for a few weeks, and then another couple of European games. And the fact that the Irish provinces are all playing French opposition this weekend is purely coincidental. Basically, there are four pools, um, similar to like a Champions Cup structure, a World Cup structure, a little bit more convoluted, to be honest, the way the Champions Cup is structured. <laughs> but the long, and, the long and short of it is that just by pure coincidence, luck of the draw, the way the fixtures were laid out this weekend, it's, it's an Ireland versus France weekend, only three weeks out from a, a France versus Ireland meeting in the Six Nations. So the stars have kind of aligned in that way. But yeah, the, the basics of the competitions are that you have this domestic competition in England, the Premiership, you have the top 14 in France, the URC consists of the Irish provinces, the Scottish clubs, the Welsh regions, the two Italian clubs, and the South African franchises who left Super Rugby. That's all one, let's call it domestic competition for the sake <laughs> of argument. And then those seasons continue as normal, uh, in a normal sort of a league format. And then you have a couple of weekends dotted in between, interspersed into that season where you break for continental competition, where all of those clubs from all of those leagues are paired against each other. Brilliantly explained. Hope you, I hope you took that on board, Louis. Um, so, so France is, is a decent uh, league. I think 16 teams in the URC, 16 teams. Uh, that's the conglomerate of Ireland, Wales, etc., etc., and ten clubs in the English uh, Premiership have yet to go bankrupt. Uh, is how I, I describe that competition. Um, Leinster. Where was the, Leinster, where was the kicking ping pong? Exactly. Where was the, where Gee, was that, the kicking that table was a, tennis? That disgraced bath. rugby over the weekend. Fantastic, wonderful stuff. <laughs> a great advertisement for the game. Uh, uh, professional forceback, Louis. Come on, uh, Leinster. Yeah, who top, in the in the in the European Champions Cup, there are. Four pools of six. In pool four, Leinster are top. Leinster are also top in the URC. Leinster have a decent head coach, I understand now. Um, I, I'd like to check in. How's their line speed? Are they always offside? <laughs> well, it depends on who you ask, Louis. You know that. Uh, I think, in fairness, it's been a, a betting-in period, certainly for Jacques Nienaber, and right. there's been really impressive elements to their defence so far. He's actually very interestingly given almost a, an ultimatum or a deadline for them to have fully embedded, have fully implemented his defensive system. He's given them about 14 weeks. And certainly in the opening stages of this season, they've kind of choked away the way Leinster tend to. They've had a couple of speed bumps along the way, including that home defeat to Ulster at the weekend just gone. But you can see the ingredients already. You can see these little almost defensive combinations, um, they, their, their approach in general, their work rate, which has never even been a problem for Leinster, but it's so glaring when you watch them under Nienaber now, that defensive work rate is genuinely, it's almost alien watching these guys, and yeah. that's only five or six weeks in, maybe seven weeks in, so it's a frightening prospect for all of the clubs in Europe, all of the clubs in the URC down the line, that if this properly clicks, and you would have to suggest with a coach of his calibre it will, they're going to be even harder to stop than ever before, and I guess on the, on the other side of Leinster, just to uh, bring another Kiwi into the equation. You've got your, your old buddy Andrew Goodman there, who's the attack coach, and he's also been appointed the Ireland attack coach from the summer onwards because Mike Cash will be departing. So that would be an interesting one from, I guess, from the point of view of you guys down there in the sense that it's a real nice step in Goodman's career and a good chance for him to further his CV. But equally, 
he's working with a lot of Leinster or Ireland back at Leinster. He's working with a lot of those combinations to begin with and has been for the last year or so. So there should be a little bit of continuity there. The only differences in Ireland, say, from the summer onwards would be you'd expect uh, Jack Crowley to be starting at out half. Bundy Aki is at Connacht. Mac Hansen also at Connacht. But just an interesting step in Goodman's career yeah. and one that I think is, is met with relative enthusiasm up here as well. You're a big boxing man, uh, and I want to steal a bit of time uh, on that subject before we let you go. Gavin Casey is with us, Irish uh, sports journalist. Uh, the heavyweight division, uh, especially, a lot of New Zealanders are transfixed on that because Joseph Parker uh, has been there or thereabouts over a number of years and, of course, finished the year with a, a really impressive win against a really unimpressive uh, Deontay Wilder. Um, it was a crazy car just before Christmas. So uh, we've got some fights now sorted. Um, the year of 2024 um, you know, where does Joseph Parker sit in, in all of thing, things here? And, you know, how much noise can he make with, with him and his partner, um, Andy Lee? The, him and the trainer seem to be getting along quite swimmingly. Yeah, it's a really interesting story, Joseph Parker. It feels like a bit of a career renaissance. And then you consider he's not even that old. Is he 31, 32, something along those lines? And Indeed. Obviously, mm-hmm. he used to be. Uh, yeah, 32. And he was a world champion as recently as 2018 as well. And you kind of put that into context. He was such a young man when he went and won that WBO belt and lost eventually to Anthony Joshua in the Millennium Stadium in Cardiff. And honestly, what is it, six years on now? I think that was March 2018. Like, if they met again... I would probably favour Joseph Parker. And that's a testament to the way his form has really skyrocketed under Andy Lee, with Andy Lee. And that Deontay Wilder victory, I know you pointed out, Dan, that it probably wasn't the greatest version of Deontay Wilder we've seen. But I really do think Joey Parker deserves a lot of credit for almost decommissioning some of Wilder's weaponry. Like, we didn't really see Wilder throw his right hand the way you have grown to expect from him over the years, that nuclear weapon that he has. But that's because every time he looked to load it up, Joseph Parker would either faint with his own right hand or throw a right hand of his own and just throw him off kilter a little bit. And I know Andy's plan going into that fight was to fight fire with fire. And you consider anybody who has a plan to fight fire with fire (laughs) alongside Deontay Wilder is probably insane. And I really thought this is suicide, but they pulled it off. And by God, did they pull it off. I mean, Parker beat him from pillar to post. I think he's top of the queue now in the heavyweight division. I know that, wow. say, Joshua has decided instead to fight Francis Ngannou, who's a mixed martial arts convert, former UFC heavyweight champion who pushed Tyson Fury pretty close only a few months ago. And I think that fight makes commercial sense for Joshua, right? The titles are tied up between Fury and Alexander Usyk, who are going to fight in April. So while you're waiting around, if you're Anthony Joshua, certainly if you're Francis Ngannou, you might as well make you know, 50 million quid each or whatever it winds up being. That kind of freezes Joseph Parker out for the first five or six months of the year. But I think when the dust settles, and depending on who owns the titles by the end of that Fury-Usyk fight, I think Parker is right in the mix. Like, I think that victory over Wilder is as good a, a heavyweight victory as you can have outside of a title fight, right? And that pretty much makes you the number one contender, at least one or two. And I do think the trajectory is on with Andy. You, you know, you guys have had Andy on the show, and what he's brilliant at is not yeah. only the technical aspect of boxing coaching, but it's the psychological aspect. And I think he's, un- I think he's unleashed a monster in Parker now. Yeah. I think Parker yeah. believes himself to be a beast now again. And that's where I think yeah. if he met Joshua again eventually, you know, a beast probably beats Anthony Joshua, or a beastly version of Joseph Parker, whereas back in 2018, he was, he was a little bit gun-shy, a little bit young, as we were saying. He was. 
he was very gun shy in that fight. And he's got he's got that Andy Lee has has got that full trust relationship with Joseph Parker, and I think towards the end of his relationship with Kevin Barry, you could see that Joe that the the, the cogs were starting to turn in his head. Are we doing the right thing? I don't think he questions that at all now. And he went four and zero last year, but then Andy Lee goes three and zero three knockouts with Paddy Donovan, who I know you know well, Gav. So. I mean, Andy's star itself, is he in high demand? And you, you speak to him relatively often. I mean, does he know that he is one of the hottest commodities um, in boxing mentoring right now? He's the kind of guy who probably would not like to think of it along those terms, <laughs> but you're absolutely right to point it out. I think he is one of the most exciting trainers in the game. He is certainly one of the most sought-after trainers in the game. I have, I suppose, decent working relationships with various boxing managers around the world, really. And they, I, I know a lot of them have contacted me asking, you know, do you think this fighter could work with Andy? And I know a lot of them have probably approached Andy over the last 80 months or so and asked him that same question. And the thing is, he only takes on a certain number of fighters. He's a busy man, as it is. You mentioned Paddy Donovan, who's flying. Uh, a good Limerick man, once a rugby fan as well. And then you have, say, the likes of Jason Quigley and a few more. But I think the... Um, I think Andy is in a position where he's probably had to actually turn down really top-level talent because of the fighters he's working with currently. He has those relationships, as you mentioned, Louis, with the likes of Joe, where it's beyond trainer and client, really, isn't it? It's more so a, a friendship, a kind of a brotherhood that he tends to um, foster in these kind of dynamics between fighter and coach. And, and I think that, like, I don't even think that's a, well, it probably is a conscious decision, but Andy is that kind of a fella anyway. He's just such a, an amiable guy and I think fighters understand he's been in there and done it and that really isn't often the case with the top level trainers a guy who's actually gone and won a world title himself and has gone through a lot of adversity in order to get to that point you know he's stopped a couple of times by Brian Vera by Julio Cesar Chavez during his own career and he really battled he would have had to battle the demons involved with that and he came through all of that won a world title in Las Vegas as an underdog and if you're Joseph Parker or any young fighter like Paddy Donovan who's looking for a trainer you want a guy who's technically astute you want a guy who understands the mentality of what you're doing. Andy is mm. a perfect candidate, really, isn't he? And um, I'm excited to see how the two of them go as a combination over the coming years because I do think after the Fury-Usyk fight, like it's conceivable that Fury and Usyk both retire by the second half of this year. And what does that leave you with in the heavyweight division? Right? It's probably Joshua, arguably Francis Ngannou, um, Zhang from China, Filip Hergovic from Croatia. Like That seems like a heavyweight team right for the picking. And your boy is looking like he's entering the prime of his career. So I think his most exciting years are ahead of him, for sure. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Yeah, the Nagano one, I'm not sure, is he, is he deemed a legitimate boxer now or a cash cow gimmick? Uh, the cynic in me still leans the latter. I guess we'll find out in that Joshua fight, won't we? I, one of the yeah. things I will say yeah. in Nagano's favour or, or to his credit is that how long have we been calling for all of these big boys to fight each other at some point? And I know Wilder and Fury did three times, and credit to them. But like Joshua and Wilder didn't fight each other because if you get down to brass tacks, both of them were scared to lose to each other. And that's why these guys don't yeah. really hold a candle to yeah. the great heavyweights from past eras. Great. Nganu's Just come in, get it on. He said, we're gonna fight. yeah, we're gonna, I'm going to fight you all. Now, there's mitigation in the sense that he's earning probably 100 times more than he would have uh, earned in the UFC, right? And there's also mitigation in the sense that he doesn't have a boxing reputation to protect, per se. So even if he gets embarrassed, who cares? You're a mixed martial artist. You don't have a great deal to lose. But he still has the courage to go in there and do it. And he has the courage, actually, or at least he had the courage in the Fury fight, to go in there and make a fool of himself. It's just that he didn't. And he, he surprised a lot of boxing fans, I think, with how he quitted himself that night. And look, I... As I say, we need a little bit of excitement in that division. If Ngannou turns out to be a good boxer, I'll be happy for him, and boxing will be the better for yeah. it as well. So 
I agree with you for the moment. There, definitely, um, there's a commercial element to this. But who knows? If he lands one on Anthony Joshua, hey, look, he looks like he has the power to, to trouble anybody. So we'll see, what, we'll see how it plays out. Gavin, we love having you on. We always learn so much. Thanks so much. You're, you're great at taking our little, uh, you know, weak-ass jabs to the chin about quarterfinals, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, enjoy winter over there. Enjoy all the rugby, all the boxing. We'll catch up with you real soon, we hope. Dan, Louis, gents, thanks as always.